You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Locally Source Science listeners, my name is Liz Mahood and I am your host for this episode. As we see more leaves turning various shades of red and orange, it is increasingly clear that the season has changed and we are now fully in fall. What may not have been so clear to some is that a drought spell accompanied this shift in seasons. According to the U.S. Drought Monitor, as a result of the prolonged period of hot and dry weather, Tompkins County and much of the Finger Lakes are experiencing moderate drought conditions. With the onset of climate change, droughts are predicted to increase in frequency. To learn more about how plants react to water deficits, Esther Rakusen speaks with Cornell scientist Dr. Taryn Bowerly. She is an associate professor in the Cornell School of Integrative Plant Science Horticulture section. Also in today's show, Janani Hariharan speaks with Dr. Katie Fiorella to learn about harmful algal blooms, another climate change associated phenomenon that occurs in the Finger Lakes. And finally, Candace Limper will provide a summary of the Nobel Prize and highlight the 2020 winners for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. First, here's Esther Rakusen. I'm Esther Rakusen for Locally Sourced Science. Listeners may be aware that Tompkins and Schuyler counties are currently experiencing moderate drought. A post on October 8, 2020, from Brian Fuchs of the National Drought Mitigation Center, notes that one impact of moderate drought is stress to trees and landscaping. To learn more about how plants experience stress due to water deficits, I recently spoke with Dr. Taryn Bowerly. She is an associate professor in the Cornell School of Integrative Plant Science horticulture section. Bowerly studies how plants respond to water stress, both in the greenhouse and in the field. I started off by asking her about some of the ways that plants might respond to water deficits. There are a lot of ways that plants can respond to water deficits. Um, And really, a lot is dependent on the length of that uh, water deficit. But generally speaking, um, plants can either avoid or tolerate that lack of water. So avoidance things might be like some of the plants are closing their stomates to prevent water loss or some of the plants are shedding their leaves to reduce transpiration. So clearly um, we're in the midst of fall right now, and so we're seeing a lot of that shedding of leaves, but it's not necessarily, of course, in response to the deficit itself. The shedding of leaves might have happened much earlier, actually during the summer months, for example. I asked Bowerly to explain what stomates are and how they work. So stomates are basically like small pores uh, in the leaves, on the leaf surface. And so um, they're responsible for the gas exchange of the leaves. So just kind of similar to how we breathe in a way, 
Um, and so the water that moves through a plant all the way from its root system, so from the soil into the roots and all the way through the plant actually exits the, the plant through those stomates. Bowerly also stated that plants respond to stress by increasing the formation of antioxidants. Here, she explains what those are and why they are protective to plants. On the other hand, some plants can actually tolerate relatively well water deficits, so they actually can produce antioxidants that can help to really prevent cell damage. And actually, uh, in fall, so during um, plants that produce a good amount of antioxidants might actually do a little bit better, at least for giving us the good fall colors. So they might produce some more of these antioxidants under a very mild or sometimes moderate drought stress. And we actually get to benefit from seeing those during the fall colors. And they're helping to scavenge free radicals to prevent that cell damage. So there are a number of different chemical complexes that the plants can produce. um, And they happen to result in some of these beautiful colors. I then asked Bowerly what her lab studies pertaining to the plant response to drought. We actually spend a lot of our time uh, looking at the below ground portion of the plant, so the root systems primarily, um, because as you can imagine, uh, they are that first organ that is sensing water stress. And so we're very interested in how they're responding uh, and what that means for the growth and livelihood of the tree or the plant. If there isn't any precipitation that's occurring, then the soil becomes drier and drier and plants um, can't maintain taking up water and they become more and more stressed. Bowerly is interested in the integration of whole plant water status in relation to soil and root demographics. I asked her to define whole plant water status and how she measures it. The measure of the water availability to plants and basically their hydraulic state. So how hydrated are they? Um, We all, of course, in times like now that you mentioned with this moderate stress, that also encompasses what level of water stress might these plants have. Sort of our bread and butter, if you will, of techniques to measure water status is quite an antiquated thing. We use something called a Scholander pressure bomb. It's a very heavy and cumbersome piece of equipment that was developed in the mid 1960s or so. And we basically cut off a leaf or a root from the plant and we place it into this chamber that we pressurize and wait for water to come out of that tissue. And we can measure what something we call the water potential, and it tells us an approximate estimation of how much stress that plant is under. I then asked her to describe soil and root demographics and how her lab studies them. Yeah, so we say root demographics, or, or even more frequently, we use the term root dynamics, Uh, Basically, it's the process of measuring when roots are born, when they might die, and we try to determine information about that root population. And that tells us a lot about when roots are living, where they're living in the soil, 
And we use some uh, below ground cameras in order to get that information. We will insert clear plastic tubing uh, into the soil that then remains there for long term, and I mean on the span of years. And we have special cameras that fit into this tubing that we can visit whenever we desire and take very detailed images of these root systems. So basically track plants, root systems, yeah, over multiple years if needed. We primarily focus on trees, uh, but we really measure all across the board. Um, most of the work we do in our lab is very question-based. So if we think that sunflowers, for example, might be the best plant to use in order to answer a question, then we'll use sunflowers. We're really trying to understand what these processes are in plants uh, and what, how plants are responding to water stress. So we do a lot of our work um, both in the greenhouse, uh, out in the field, in forests. So we really move around quite a lot. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusen, and I'm speaking with Dr. Taryn Bowerly about her studies of how plants respond to water deficits. I wondered if soil and root organisms might somehow influence the way that plants respond to water deficits. We don't really exactly know uh, at this moment. And actually, that's a, a focus of several projects that we're currently working on and, and several other labs, of course, as well, uh, to try to understand that relationship. Because roots and uh, soil organisms uh, collectively uh, experience this drought stress and to try to understand um, how that interaction occurs is very interesting. We do know that soil organisms, uh, their community structure and who's present can shift with drought, but how that actually affects the plant, um, I guess that's to be continued. Bowerly detailed what other questions her lab is focusing on right now. So we're very interested um, in some of these concepts we uh, brought up already. So where uh, the trees might place their roots, how they might go deeper or change sort of their niche that they are growing in. And we're interested also in thinking about if you have multiple trees growing together, how that might change the process. And then we're interested in thinking about that direct connection between the root and its soil environment, and how in some cases roots actually can change or modify that environment through chemicals that they exude through their roots into the soil. And so we're trying to learn more about how that might help keep the connection of the root to the soil, or even change the microbes in the soil to perhaps help in that process. Her lab is also studying what mechanisms take place when newly planted trees get established. When you receive that tree, it can come in many different forms. It might come already in a pot filled with soil, or it might come as something we call a bare root, where a lot of the roots are actually removed and you really only have the structural root system left. Um, and so many different formats that trees come in, what does that mean for when you plant it into your yard or into a landscape? 
and how those roots establish and what role does water play in the movement of water in the tree to help it establish and grow new roots. In a Cornell News podcast from last year, Bowerly stated that, quote, we pass laws to protect our water sources like lakes and reservoirs, but what many people don't know is that our access to clean water relies just as heavily on forests. I asked her to explain why she compares forests to water reservoirs. So I think you can think of trees or forests very much like a reservoir or even sort of like a sponge. So a mature tree is made up of actually thousands of gallons of water. And so collectively trees in a forest that are transpiring, so losing the water to the atmosphere, um, these forests are naturally filtering that water as well and cooling the environment. And so in many regards, there's a lot of similarities between reservoirs and trees or forests. And they're also holding on to a lot of water just within their biomass, as well as moving that water um, from the soil up through the tree. And so in many regards, sort of cleaning that water uh, in some ways as well. And so it's an entire cycle there. Finally, I asked Dr. Taryn Bowerly what else she would like our listeners to know about how plants respond to water deficits. I would just say, you know, don't take trees or plants uh, for granted, particularly in these, these times, even with moderate stress. They serve so many important ecosystem uh, services for us, though that it's really in our best interest to try to protect and preserve these trees and forests as well. Thanks again to Dr. Taryn Bowerly of the Cornell School of Integrative Plant Science for speaking with me about the ways that plants respond to the stress of drought conditions. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. We just heard Esther Rakusin interview Dr. Taryn Bowerly about how plants survive water deficit. Next up, Janani Heriharan talks with Dr. Katie Fiorella from Cornell University. Dr. Fiorella was recently awarded a National Science Foundation grant to study the economic and health effects of algal blooms on human communities in Kenya. We will also hear about local algal blooms in the Finger Lakes area and what they mean for our ecosystem. I am Janani Hariharan for Locally Source Science. I'm Katie Fiorella. I'm an assistant professor at Cornell in the Department of Population Medicine and Diagnostic Sciences and the Master of Public Health program. Thank you. So we're reaching out to you because we heard that you recently won um, an award from the National Science Foundation that enabled you to study um, algal blooms in Africa. Could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So harmful algal blooms have been proliferating around the world. They're increasing in their extent, in their intensity, and in their duration. And we're seeing them certainly in the Finger Lakes region, but also globally. And so the, the lake that we're going to be studying is Lake Victoria in Kenya. And Lake Victoria is Africa's third largest lake. It sits between Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. And it produces the largest harvest of fish from a lake globally. Um, so there are about 30 million people that live in the basin surrounding Lake Victoria, really integrally tied to this for their livelihoods, their fish access, and, 
And increasingly, this lake is beset by these harmful algal blooms that are happening everywhere. Um, and in particular, there's there's a little bay that um, is is an inlet that's that is adjacent to Kenya's third largest city, Kisumu. And the effluent from the city runs off into the into the lake and is a big source of the nutrient pollution that's creating the harmful algal blooms there. A lot of places in the world were really concerned about agricultural runoff. Um, that's a little bit of a concern in these regions, but much more so is the is the pollution that's coming from cities and um, and the the waste produced there that's that's increasing the nutrient loading especially um, in in this bay area that's right next to the city. And yeah. so what we're trying to understand in this system is how these harmful algal blooms are affecting people that are using the lake for their fishing, um, for the fish that they consume, and and what exactly is happening sort of underwater to the, the aquatic food web as this, this bloom intensity is increasing. Yeah. And, and so could you tell us a little bit about maybe how algal blooms are formed in the first place? Yeah, so, so an excess of nutrients that makes its way into water creates these conditions that make it really, really possible for algae to, to essentially like overgrow. Um, and so algae are part of the food web and they're, they're often consumed by fish or, or other aquatic life. Um, but when they, when they essentially grow to be too prolific, um, they can block the sunlight, they consume oxygen from the water, and when they die, their decomposition also consumes the oxygen in the system. And, and the oxygen in the water is really needed for a good, healthy, healthy aquatic food web. Um, and, and so sometimes you get things like fish kills, fish dying off in these systems. Um, and more chronically, we get these conditions where this excess of algae um, can sort of turn on and turn off to produce harmful toxins. And so one of the most common groups are these cyanobacteria producing harmful algal blooms. Um, and they produce a class of toxins called microcystins. Um, warming conditions like from climate change and um, have an effect in, in making them more common. Uh, and exactly what turns them on and off to produce the toxin isn't necessarily um, totally established, but but the presence of these blooms that can produce these harmful toxins are really worrisome, um, and they've been concerned for a long time for water quality. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing that we see here. So anyway, so the the harmful algal blooms turn on and off and produce these microcystin toxins. They're a really big concern for drinking water quality. Um, they're concerned for swimming. Um, and increasingly, we're also concerned that they can accumulate in fish. And so there's some evidence from the group of folks that I'm working with that this is happening. Um, and what we're really aiming to do with, with the part of the project that happens underwater is to understand this much better and to look at across the different species in the food web, which ones are accumulating more of this toxin, which ones are sort of being most affected by it with the potential to, to also increase, increase the risk to people who consume these fish. And so do we know anything from other parts of the world about the impact that algal blooms have on human societies? Yeah, so we know, we know that harmful algal blooms can produce a range of health problems and, and also that they're really quite varied in the, in the different types of algae that are harmful and, and the toxins that they're producing. So 
they have a whole range of causes from a really foul smell to skin irritation and contact with the water. Um, in more extreme examples in the U.S., we've seen um, pet deaths. If you if you have a dog, for example, who goes in to a harmful algal bloom and then licks their coat afterwards, you can get an acute toxicity from them. Um, also seen this with other wildlife. So there's sort of a really extreme uh, acute case. Um, but what is less well known is really what the health consequences of chronic exposure to them are. Um, and so for, for communities that are, that are facing these blooms more and more, um, and, and potentially encountering them more so in the food that they're eating from this fish consumed, um, or, or from unimproved drinking water sources, what the, what the implication of that risk is for health. There are a lot of concerns, certainly the liver toxin, produced through these microcystins that's really problematic and end of end of great concern but the extent of the long-term health consequences is not yet established if you're just tuning in this is locally source science i am janani harihuran and i'm talking to dr katie fiorella about a recent national science foundation grant that she won to study algal blooms in lake victoria kenya you know, one of one of the things we're we're really interested in trying to understand is is both sort of what's happening underwater with the lakes and how are people responding to these changing conditions. Um, it's certainly possible that um, that you know some of the strategies we have here involve a lot of close monitoring and and getting people out of the water when when conditions are riskier. Um, in places where people are fishing a lot. Um, it may well be, and, and some of our early our early findings suggest that actually fishermen are already avoiding these blooms, which would which would be a good thing because then um, they may well be sort of steering clear of some of the riskier spots. Um, and so that's something we're going to be really thinking about. Sort of what are what are the strategies that that people on the ground are already using or can be using to to bring them less into contact with some of these risks, um, and and to the extent that the blooms are accumulating in the fish supply, um, what are some of the communication strategies for consumers that we can think about that will be beneficial? Um, I think one of one of the risks that we see is that if if the fish themselves are risky um, and we communicate that, it might mean that wealthier consumers can purchase safer fish, and and that almost at the same time directs some of the riskier fish to poorer consumers. Um, so that would be a really big concern, and so we're going to be thinking really carefully about what some of the what some of the communication strategies might be um, that would sort of best that would best deal both with sort of the reality of these blooms and and the risks that they may be posing and the equity concerns that they're also engendering. And so you mentioned that this is a problem in the U.S. as well, and I'm wondering if closer to our backyard in the Finger Lakes, is this a problem at all? Do we know of algal blooms in the Finger Lakes? Yeah, absolutely. And so, well, so first of all, I'll just say that by studying this in Kenya, where in a lot of ways, the intensity is is higher, the intensity of use of these waterways is very high, the intensity of the blooms is really high. Um, what we're hoping to understand about them will certainly be transferable to other systems too. Um, and in the Finger Lakes, we we are increasingly concerned about harmful algal blooms. I think um, people that are familiar with the the swimming spots around around the lakes in this region will notice that they are increasingly closed during the summer months for harmful algal bloom concerns. Um, so the water is tested really frequently, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of concern 
about the fact that they're increasing in this region as well. Ultimately, we're also going to be working with the Paleontological Research Institute uh, to develop museum exhibits for for that will be available for kids in this region um, at the Cayuga Nature Center, as well as for Kenyan school children at the at the Freshwater Research Institute at the Kenya Marine Fishery and Research Institute. So so we're really excited to have those forthcoming too, and they're a little bit a little bit down the road, but we look forward to bringing those and having them available before too long also. So this, this sounds like a global um, problem of huge importance, right, both ecologically and socially. And I'm wondering um, what strategies people use to reduce the intensity of blooms or just get rid of them altogether. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, the origins of these blooms are really multifaceted and they they unfortunately have a lot to do with, with environmental problems that are really tough to, to grapple with. So in many ways, these sort of wicked problems that are, are hard to come up with easy solutions to. Um, so when we have when we have runoff that's polluting waterways, one of the challenges is that it's it's usually non-point runoff. It's not coming from one place necessarily. Um, you know, if it's in the case that it's a city's effluent, that's a problem, certainly better treatment of the wastewater from that city would be a huge boon. Um, you know, it really improving wastewater treatment is complicated, right? It, it involves these big facilities and, um, and is really expensive. Um, that is certainly something that could be done. Um, but when it's when it's more diffuse and more related to agricultural runoff or otherwise, um, it, it can be harder to sort of pinpoint exactly how to improve it. Um, but, but certainly efforts can be made to reduce the, the nutrient loading in some of these lakes. Um, but the, the other really big factor that's increasingly clear with the harmful algal blooms is that it's also related to climate change. Uh, and so continuing to be a problem that we need to do a lot more to address in, in basically every way. You just heard Janani Harry-Heron interview Dr. Katie Fiorella about algal blooms in both Kenya and the Finger Lakes region. Finally, Candace Limper highlights the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry winners. Hi everyone, my name is Candace Limper with Locally Source Science, and for my segment, I'm going to highlight a couple of scientists who have recently won a Nobel Prize. But first, I want to describe what this award means and who has made this prize possible. According to the Nobel Foundation, the Nobel Prize is a set of annual international awards bestowed to those in several categories by Swedish and Norwegian institutions to recognize academic, cultural, or scientific advances. Basically, these awards are given to those who have created a paradigm shift in their field. The Nobel Prize award recipients receive close to a million dollars in a lifetime of bragging rights. I hope I have convinced you that winning this award is a big deal. This award was started by a man named Alfred Bernhard Nobel, Mr. Nobel was known for many of his patents, and the most famous was the one on dynamite. His invention for this patent changed the face of war and also contributed to making him very wealthy. While this man spent a lot of time thinking about science and business, he never got married or had children, so he left his fortune to be given to those who have greatly contributed to chemistry, medicine, literature, physics, and peace as his commitment and dedication to these topics. Now that you know what the Nobel Prize is and who started it, I want to highlight one that was given out this year. The 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry 
has been given to Emmanuel Champontier and Jennifer Duna for the development of a method for genome editing. These two women have discovered the function of the CRISPR-Cas bacterial immune system, where DNA can be cut in a precise manner. This genome engineering technology has allowed scientists to edit DNA in organisms. Not only have they won an impressive award on their scientific discoveries, this is also the first time in over 100 years that two women have won this award without sharing it with a man. If you're interested in learning more about these two scientists or about who the other awards have been given out to, you can find more information at nobelprize.org. My name is Candace Limper with Locally Source Science, and that was my segment on the history of how the Nobel Prize was initiated and my highlight of the winners of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Thank you for listening to Locally Source Science. In today's episode, we heard Janani Heriheran interview Dr. Katie Fiorella, Esther Rakusen interview Dr. Taryn Bowerly, and Candace Lumper with a Nobel Prize segment. I, Liz Mahood, was your host. We thank Joe Lewis and Blue Dot Sessions for the music. If you'd like to learn more about locally sourced science, download our podcast, or listen to archived episodes, head to our website at www.locallysourcedscience.org.